Hi everyone, just a note before we start. This episode includes discussion around some sensitive material and topics such as physical and mental abuse and sexual assault. Hi everyone, and a very warm welcome to the first episode of Floodlight, a podcast from us here at the Anti-Slavery Collective that looks to raise awareness of modern slavery by sharing stories and speaking to interesting people that are looking to combat it in their own way. I'm Eugenie. And I'm Jules. And for the last nine years, we've been passionate about fighting against slavery in all its forms, wherever it is found and throughout the world. Slavery is still very much a modern problem. There are currently more than 40 million people in slavery across the world today. That's more than at any other time in human history. Over the next 10 episodes, you'll hear from a huge range of people about how they're helping us in the fight to rid the world of modern slavery. We've spoken to officers, lawmakers on the front line, journalists, academics, company leaders and some famous faces who take enormous pride in their activism work. This series has lots of useful information about how you can identify modern slavery in your own lives. Speak up and help us raise awareness for a cause that affects everyone. We first became aware of modern slavery, you know, back 2012, in, was it? Back in 2012, when we went to Calcutta and we met the incredible Aloka Mitra, who introduced us really to trafficking or modern slavery as a, as a whole. And I, I remember at the age of 21, I had no idea that slavery even existed in our lifetime, let alone in our continent, let alone in our country or in, even in our city of London. Yeah. And I think when we went to Calcutta, when we met, um, these incredible young women who Aloka had rescued from being trafficked. She'd taught them how to print on fabrics and, and given them a vocational skill that they then, you know, um, sold their products, earned a wage from it, gave themselves independence and freedom and, and a right to sort of live again. Um, and it meant that all of a sudden, you know, they, this, is what, this is what they could do to be free. And we always say that there was that moment that you cannot unsee what you've seen or you can't unhear what you've heard. And we came back to London as two young 20-something-year-olds and we made it our mission just to learn as much as we could about modern slavery. And we would bang down the door of anyone who would talk to us. We became like private investigators, just horrified by what we'd seen and experienced and desperate to learn as much as we could. Yeah. Um, and it wasn't, and it took us sort of four or five years of just learning and working in the field to figure out how two young girls like us could make a difference. And every now we're quite old girls. Now we're trying. <laughs> oh, is that what happens when you're in your 30s? Um, and I remember we always used to say after every meeting, what can two girls like us do to help? And the answer without fail was raise awareness. So it was pretty easy in a way mm. because our mission was so clear to set up the anti-slavery collective whose mission is to raise awareness for human trafficking as a global epidemic. Yeah. And I think going back to coming back to the UK and being investigators, you know, we all of a sudden found out that there's the independent slavery commissioner who works separate to government and we went and met with him and we went and met with charities and they even took us to a safe house for the first time and that was so eye-opening for us because mm. It was our first experience of trafficking in England yeah. and in the UK. And we learned the fact of there is someone being trafficked from within a mile of where you live. 
And, and, like, and people can be trafficked from within the UK to the UK. To the UK. It doesn't even need to be across borders. Yeah. And that, that safe house that we went to, we met, you know, the incredible Seema, who literally became our sort of, you know, guiding light, really. You know, we set mm. up the collective Very to much help. with her in mind. Yeah. And the fact that we got there that day and she goes, oh, my God, you guys are amazing. Or I want to do what you're doing. And I have... I'm a survivor of trafficking. I've been through it since a very young age. Now I want to go and help people. And I think for us, that was like, well, done deal. Then Savory Collective has to be where we go forward. We don't want to reinvent the wheel. We want this charity to be something where we tell people about our mission, but we want other charities to, to gain recognition. We want people in the field who've been working for so many years to be able to spread their message wider and us to be a floodlight or a foghorn foghorn or shine a light on the positivity of what can happen when anyone really puts their mind to to changing the planet. And I think collective also is such an important word because we believe that two heads are better than one. If we're going to affect any kind of real change in our lifetimes, we have to work together. And that's not just within the charity sector, working with other NGOs, but how can we work with businesses and government and law enforcement and academics. And if everyone comes together and works together, we're far more likely to affect substantial change. Yeah, and I think also just allowing people to know that they can be mini abolitionists or, you know, you can you can look at what you're doing in your life and, and try and pay it forward, help yeah. that person that you think might be in trouble or, or not, or just make good decisions, you know. I think the collective we always inspire each other to do the same. So yeah. we should continue that. Absolutely. And it's it's such an important message. No matter who you are, you can everyone can do their part and everyone can make a change. And hopefully that's what this podcast series will inspire people to do. And also now, looking at where the collectives come to in the years since we went to that first safe house and we got back from Calcutta, you know, we've been able to do some really cool things like the amount of visits to survivors' houses we've been doing and actually just meeting with survivors, but grassroots organisations that are working on the ground, listening to what they have to say and do has been so integral in in what our mission is. But also, you know, using social media to raise awareness, um, hosting thought leadership events, connecting people from across industries. You know, we've we've managed to do a, a lot of amazing things with our with our journey. Yeah, and I think this year has been great too with our education outreach program, spending time with schools so that people don't, like me, get to the age of 21 and not know that slavery existed. We have our podcast and lots more exciting things to come. Before we get into the series, we thought it would be helpful just to clarify what exactly is modern slavery and how serious is this as a problem, because we often refer to it as a global epidemic. Slavery can be defined as the commodification of people for the purpose of exploiting them for financial gain. And modern slavery really restricts one's freedom through the, the use of coercion or um, physical force or sometimes psychological force. So, so ultimately vulnerable people that are being treated as commodities. Yes, and modern slavery happens everywhere and anywhere. You'd be genuinely surprised. It affects women, it affects men, and it affects children of all ages. And modern slavery, really interestingly, is a $150 billion industry, and it's one of the fastest growing forms of international crime. I mean, second only to the arms trade. 
Once we understand how slavery connects to our lives, we start realizing that it's actually the clothes we wear, it's in the food we eat, it's the items we buy and the services we purchase. So how can you check? How do you know if it's impacting your life and where and how? There's a Modern Slavery Footprint website which shows you how your lifestyle choices are connected to slavery, giving people the knowledge and power to become more of an ethical consumer because sometimes it's just impossible to know. And awareness of modern slavery allows people to spot indicators of where slavery may be occurring in their local communities. So there are so many resources out there that can help you spot and report the signs of modern slavery. And for example, here in the UK, you can actually reach out to the Modern Slavery Helpline for any advice. But take a look in our show notes and you'll be able to see loads more resources and any help you might need. We hope this was a helpful overview of the Anti-Slavery Collective and of modern slavery in general. Thank you for listening to our podcast. Let's get into it. So for our first episode, we caught up with Caroline Hockey. Caroline is a criminal barrister who has worked on some of the most high profile and complex human trafficking and modern slavery cases in Britain today. I want proper sentences. At that point in time, the maximum sentence was 14 years. To put that in context, if you got found holding or in possession of two kilos of cocaine, you're going to get a longer sentence because the maximum sentence for possession of drugs with intent to supply is life. You wow. tell me how that makes sense. Where it's okay to traffic people and get a max of 14 years, but it's not okay for drugs. I'm sorry, but Doesn't our matter. values are somewhat distorted. Right. She successfully prosecuted the first child sex exploitation and child labour case under the Modern Slavery Act, which she helped to write herself. In addition to all that incredible work, Caroline is also a trustee of the Anti Slavery Collective. So we've had the great privilege of working with her on all of her activism work. She's also been a mentor to both of us. And we've spoken to her about her involvement in drafting the UK's Modern Slavery Act, but also some of her hugely difficult but important cases that she's tried and how we can also spot signs of modern slavery in our own life. Caroline, so we're sitting doing our podcast that we've been speaking about for two years now, I think. And we're finally with big scary things in front of our faces but we're mm. talking yes and you have been such a good friend to the collective that you're now a trustee but please just tell us like when did we even meet you and I think it was before we even set up the collective it, was. it um, really was so we met on 14th of December I only remember because it was my birthday and we had a really long chat about what modern slavery is what did I do I don't often talk about what I do outside of my boring legal world. What but do you do? Should we tell everyone yeah. quite how cool you are? And you're too self-deprecating, so <laughs> will you allow me to just do it? So Caroline <laughs> Hockey, QC, um, is one of the youngest QCs in the United Kingdom, and she is a criminal barrister who specialises in modern slavery and human trafficking. And most of the big human trafficking cases that you read about in the media, Caroline has had something to do with them. She also helped draft the Modern Slavery Bill in 2014? 2014. 2014. That is really good. Yeah, nerd. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I, um, I think it really all started was I prosecuted the first modern slavery case, so-called, in the UK, which was a bizarre, brilliant, enlightening experience. And then it kind of just evolved from there. And then through mutual friend, you guys, and we met and then we had our meeting. And I remember thinking to myself, God, these two poor girls, because I am a geriatric and you are still children. <laughs> and I remember emailing you 
so much. I think both your emails came back and said, uh-uh, mailbox yeah. full. Yeah. <laughs> no, thank you. So I resent you loads of stuff, opening notes from some of my cases, um, the UN legislation, the Palermo Protocol stuff. Then in the January, you guys got back in contact with me and it really completely pulled the carpet from under my feet. And I mean this in the best possible way, Yuj, because your first question to me was, why, when you did the case of Mottrock, did he only get this sentence when he'd done this, 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 and this? And I remember thinking, oh, I read pants. I read the homework. That's really annoying. Um, and that was it, really. And then we just kept the conversation going. So did you give us homework that was about a case that you prosecuted? So I gave you a case, I mean, two sex trafficking cases that I yeah. prosecuted. Was it about Romanian? Something about Romanian? Romanian, that's yeah. right, where we had a young victim who had come to the UK to be a prostitute of her own volition, had got in with a pimp in the UK, and whether she wanted to be a prostitute or not, as long as she is being pimped, she is being exploited. So, so that's the law. Right. Uh, unless she works for herself and keeps all of her money, she has been controlled for the purposes of sexual exploitation, and anyone who facilitated any part of her journey to the UK, knowing that, or moved up between brothels in the UK, knowing that's what it was for, is guilty of sex trafficking. So, I prosecuted a very complex case, and the guy is a man called Yonat Motrock, a very bright Romanian man, and his wife became a prostitute, and he saw it as an easy access to money. And there was a corrupt police community support officer who um, was also blackmailing the prostitutes in West London, uh, sorry, in East London, uh, West Ham area, in fact. And it was really, um, I gave you all the case summary on that. It was a very complex case with lots of different people saying lots of different things. And it's basically extrapolating it all out and showing you why did we charge what we did? How did we go on that journey? And the particularly, uh, I suppose, tragic thing about all of this was the poor main victim, young woman, she came over when she was 18, she was 20 by the time she came to our attention, had been locked in, a, she'd met Yonat, who groomed her into a relationship and said, my brothel's better than your brothel, mm. I'll give you more money, blah, blah, blah took her to the brothel and then locked her in a room and kept her there for six months, raping her every day. And uh, when he'd finished raping her, he would put her to work and she would see 10 or 14 men a night. How did you hear about the case? So um, my instructing solicitor, who has sadly since retired from the CPS, Damaris Lakin, um, got the case. In fact, it was two. It started with Cara Pickering, who was the lawyer who instructed me in the first modern slavery case. She had the first case and she gave it to me. And she said the initial part was uh, the sex trafficking bit. And then we started unpicking the case, just the allegation mm. about Yonat Mottrock. And we had an amazing officer called Mickey Hafford, who sadly retired from the police, who's outstanding. And it was really weird. It was one of those cases where you literally have maybe six pieces of the jigsaw and you're kind of going, I can't see what this is. And then you start pulling in bits and pieces and you start to fill out the edges. And then you get a key piece in the middle and you go, okay, I now get what this is. So we started off with two defendants and by the end of it, we had 11. Oh and we had 44 different criminal charges laid against him. Wow. Yeah, it was extraordinary. He was blackmailing people, corrupting people, sexually assaulting them, trafficking them, raping them. Um, he was uh, doing money laundering, obviously. He um, was trying to run it from prison and didn't think we were listening to the prison phone calls, despite the big sign that says your calls are recorded. <laughs> but, um, so it was a fascinating case. And I would say, honestly, that as much as the first slavery case, the Mottrock case 
shaped how I now look at cases because it was a really tough case. I used a guy called Craig Barlow to help me, who's a, um, a social worker who deals with vulnerable people and has now done his doctorate in human trafficking, who's brilliant. And he sat and read the interviews of the defendant, Yonat, and my complainant, my victim. And he helped me ask the questions in such a way as not to damage her more, because mm. she was giving evidence mm. from Romania, and to ask him better questions. And in the first trial, so we won the first trial by the rape allegations, I was cross-examining for two days. It was literally... Wow. Yeah, I mean, it was monumental. But when we did the second trial, I kind of knew where we were. And I took a totally different approach. I let him talk for a day and a half about how this was all lies. Everyone was lying, him, whatever. And then, I, with Craig's advice, I did the cross-examination in an hour and a half. I just said, I just want to understand, is this your case? Mm. Uh, and this is not me being good. This is me getting the right people to tell me how to mm. do it properly and ask the questions. And it was literally, I just want you to explain to me so that I understand, because forgive me, Mr. Mottrop, you are doing this case in your second language and you're clearly a phenomenally bright man. He was. Mm. Why are all these girls who you absolutely accept have never met each other? Why are they all saying that you raped them, you controlled them, you moved them between brothels and that you ran the brothels. What's in it for them? And he couldn't answer the question. And that was what we hinged the whole of the cross-examination yeah. on. And when he couldn't answer that, there was they're all liars. But I get that that's what you're saying, but why are they lying? Yeah. What's in it for them? Because what's in it for you is money. You have to accept that. If if all of this is true, the game for you is money. Yeah. What's in it for them? How many years did he get? His initial sentence was 34 years. Wow. wow. Longest sentence ever imposed for such offending. So when was the first um, modern slavery case prosecuted here in the UK? The, uh, under what I would call 21st century legislation, yeah. that was prosecuted in April 2010. And that was mm. the case of SK, which was the first case on modern slavery. Uh, sorry, 2011. What happened me. before then? We didn't have the legislation, we prosecuted trafficking. And in fact, the first modern slavery case, I couldn't prosecute the slavery. I could only prosecute the trafficking into the UK. So this is a really oh. brilliant question. This is one of the things that we've really identified with the Palermo Protocol, which are, as you know, the bedrock yeah. of trafficking. Palermo Protocol sets out what trafficking is, okay? That's moving someone from one place to another for the purposes of exploitation, okay? Everyone signed up to it, bar basically North Korea and maybe two or three other jurisdictions. What people have forgotten is, it's all well and good getting someone from Romania to the UK. What, what are they here for? So we didn't have the legislation to prosecute slavery. So holding for sexual exploitation or holding for, in this case, labour exploitation. So once they were in the country and trafficked, it's a different type of... Different type, a different of, type of exploitation. So we could prosecute sexual exploitation yeah. by doing controlling prostitution. But when we did SK, I couldn't prosecute the fact that my victim from Tanzania was brought here, kept on a roll-up blanket on the floor beside the cooker, slept under a sheet and worked 20-hour days and was fed scraps and never paid. You couldn't prove that? Couldn't prove that. Couldn't prosecute it. I could prove it. Uh, couldn't prosecute But it. I couldn't prosecute it. There wasn't a single piece of legislation that made that criminal act. That is mad. Wow. The issue is this. You need to show that there is an element of exploitation. We live in a world where everything gets conflated, everything gets merged. People think that people smuggling, human trafficking, and illegal immigrants 
are one and the same. They're very, very different. People smuggling is taking people who go to you, the smuggler, and say, who I need to be smuggled. Precisely that. They're economic migrants, if you like, using an illegal means to get to their end destination. And there is illegality involved. But if they go, we're going to get you there in the back of the lorry, you'll be going cross land and it's going to be pretty grim and we will get you to the UK and then you're on your own. There is no exploitation because it's an agreed deal. Okay. If on the other hand, they say, I'm going to take you from Vietnam to the UK and I'm sorry, passport, I'm going to get you a lovely job and you'll be working in a nail bar, but you'll be taking home £250 a week. You'll have your own accommodation and it will be great. And you turn up in the UK and you don't have a passport and you're made to work in a house. You don't get your money. You do work in an ale bar, but it's at someone else's direction. And unless you do that work, you're on the streets and you don't speak the language. That's exploitation and that's trafficking. Imagine what it's like for me going, I'm in my hospital bed because I'm pregnant with number two, as you know, yeah. every case I do is punctuated yeah. by a child pregnancy. <laughs> and I'm in my hospital bed looking at this going, this is wrong. And so when I did the case, it got a huge amount of media attention, which was really unexpected, but it's a wonderful thing. And I gave a lecture afterwards and someone said, so how do you feel about this? And I said, you know, yeah, we got the conviction, overturned on appeal, I might add. But when we got the conviction, I was really thrilled to say that you can do it. It's really hard. And it was really hard. But what broke my heart was I don't feel the punishment meted out was reflective of the damage done to my poor victim. Yeah. My poor victim hadn't seen her daughter for three and a half years. She didn't know that she was a grandmother. She didn't know her parents had died. And when she gave evidence by way of video link to Tanzania, our amazing judge, I said in passing, she hasn't seen her daughter and my victim is still in the court building. Can we use the video link to Tanzania for her to be able to yeah. have a few minutes? The judge cleared the court and my victim had 45 minutes over lunch with her daughter for the first time in three and a half years. My gosh. That's why you do the job. Yeah. And how how did you get involved in the drafting of the Modern Slavery Bill here in the UK and, and the kind of context around that? Fate, uh, luck, right place, right time. Having done SK, the first Modern Slavery case, I got asked to then talk about it. I then did the second Modern Slavery case, which... So SK took place in 2010, 2011. In 2010, the Coroners and Justice Act came into place, came into force, and that created an offence of exploitation. But unfortunately, SK, the offending predated that. And in the UK, unless the offence is on the books, you can't prosecute it. So unless you commit the offence at the time the law is in place, you walk away scot-free. So then um, I did another case that post-dated the Coroners and Justice Act, which is the, if you like, the first step we took to the Modern Slavery Act. And that was a successful prosecution. Um, Rebecca Belira was the name of the defendant who was an HIV expert from uh, somewhere in Africa, escapes me now. And she took a nanny over and abused her, exploited her. Mm. So that, funnily enough, happened. That trial was in August. And because it's in August and there's nothing else in the press, it got huge coverage. And then there was a... Um, a review by one of the uh, human rights organizations. And they asked me, would I go along to the meeting? And my solicitor, to the launch of this review, and my, ah, my instructing solicitor, Cara, didn't want to do the speaking. She said, would you be okay doing it? 
Duh. You know, <laughs> speak two balls, of talk course for, I will. Talk for Britain, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I um, did it with Lady Justice Butler Sloss, who is uh, now in the House of Lords, but was one of the most female judges in the country and an extraordinary woman who broke glass ceilings. Just extraordinary. And she and I were on this platform and I got asked a question as the barrister who prosecuted these cases, if you were less alone in the legislative sweetie shop, what would you want? And I was like, for a start, I want the law in one place. I want it to properly reflect, not just trafficking, but the exploitation that happens in the UK. I want proper sentences. At that point in time, the maximum sentence was 14 years. To put that in context, if you got found holding or in possession of two kilos of cocaine, you're going to get a longer sentence because the maximum sentence for possession of drugs with intent to supply is life. You wow. tell me... How that makes sense. ...where it's okay to traffic people and get a max of 14 years, but it's not okay for drugs. I'm sorry, but Doesn't our know. values are somewhat distorted. Right. So I said all my other bits and pieces. I said, you know, I'd really like to have someone like a, a czar, if you like, overseeing all of this, anti-slavery commissioner. Right. Uh, then I said, I'd like to look at different orders because at this time the law was changing sex offending. So we were putting in sex offenders register and all this kind of stuff. So I said, why can't we do this with modern slavery and trafficking offences? Didn't think any more. And the next day I got a phone call from Frank Field's assistant, Frank Field, the MP. And it was he who'd asked me the question. And Lady Butler-Sloss and he were part of the all parliamentary group that were putting together the possibility of doing a modern slavery act. So they asked me to come to their meetings and a number of other barristers and practitioners and we put our ideas on the table. Then uh, and I was pregnant with number three at this point <laughs> wow. and um, prosecuting a horrific Hungarian organised crime group where the main defendant was a woman. Wow. Wow. Yeah. And people forget that in trafficking cases, yeah. women participate. So she ran the brothel? She, she trafficked? She recruited, she trafficked, she abused, she controlled, she ran the dynamic. Wow. Yeah. It was quite something. And... It was literally like the film Taken. Yeah. My victim was traded for a Mercedes, £350. Oh, my God. How do you explain that to a jury in the UK? That doesn't happen. Yeah, it does. And actually, that um, case ended up changing the law on how we treat victims really significantly. Um, Which is the most important part, really, of yeah. this, is that we're looking after their voices and... yeah. They're very central to how we change anything with modern slavery. Absolutely. One of, yeah. I would add, we need to look after them. We need to give them back their dignity and their voice. But we also have to learn to be, we have to be prepared to learn how to do cases without relying on the victims because sometimes the damage is so profound. Too much. Yeah. So they don't want to talk about it or yeah. She, yeah. Or they yeah, keep, fear. or they don't trust the police and they have to yeah. keep getting asked the same questions. Exactly. And, then yeah. and it's, that's exploiting them further. You've hit the nail on the head. I mean, and in fact, you have seen, and what you've just said is more than many participants in the criminal justice system actually recognise. But that's because you've had your exposure to seeing what it's like when we give victims back their voice. What was the Birmingham ring that you were involved with? Yeah, Operation Fort. That was a really interesting case, really challenging. Sex trafficking is actually a lot easier to deal with because, as I said to you earlier, if you, unless you work for yourself as a prostitute and... If you're giving some of your money to someone else who controls you, that's exploitation. Yeah. Whether you consent or not, irrelevant. With labour trafficking and labour exploitation, so you've got a, a, a triage system, if you like. You've got at the top end slavery, which is when someone treats you like a chattel. So yeah. I own you. Everything you do is controlled and owned by me. Then you've got domestic servitude. 
stepped down from slavery in a domestic environment. So maybe some liberties, but still horrifically exploitative. And then you've got forced to compulsory labour, which is kind of the other side of domestic servitude and perhaps in a more Farm. commercial environment. Farming, exactly. And Operation Fort was, we're told, the largest prosecution of labour exploitation in Europe. And we had about 350 victims that we've been able to identify by name. We haven't spoken to them all. And they were recruited in Poland by a Polish organised crime group of Roma extraction, as it happens. And they were told by them, and there are huge numbers of people involved. We identified 15 in the UK, but I'd say there's equally another 15 or 20 people involved that we couldn't specifically name. But we could see by code names and what have you. And they would be recruited in Poland and said, do you want to come to the UK? We're going to offer you an amazing job picking litter. They were told, you will work in recycle plants or you'll pick potatoes and you'll earn between 250 and 350 quid a week. We'll provide you with accommodation and travel to and from work. We're just really desperate for staff, so could you come? And they were really clever. They targeted homeless people, alcoholics, um, people with mental health people, problems, forgive me, people who were congregating around the train stations, which tends to be Mm. in Poland and um, in around bus stations that tended to be where homeless people congregated or people who were vulnerable. They would be encouraged to leave pretty damn quick. They would then travel to the UK, and you can travel on an ID card from Europe. Um, this is pre-Brexit. Turn up in the UK, get collected at the bus station in Birmingham, taken to a house. Instead of it being acceptable accommodation, it was horrific. 17 people living in a two-bedroom house with no hot water, no running water, no electricity, no food. They'd be given five pounds a week to live off. There, uh, they'd be taken to a bank by one of the members of the organised crime group and false details given. So their name might be given, Marius Rokoszewski, and and the names that I'm giving you are ones that where the victims have allowed their names to be said mm. in public because they're entitled to lifelong yeah. anonymity. And Marius is an extraordinary man. Marius was in the French Foreign Legion for 25 years. Wow. Marius accepted the offer because he was an alcoholic and thought, great, 350 quid a week. Oh, God, I'd be earning 90 in Poland. We had one victim who came over to save to buy his daughter a heart transplant. Yeah. I mean, it it's absolutely heartbreaking. And do you know what? Exploitation is not socioeconomic. You can be vulnerable for any number of reasons. Wrong place, wrong time. Yeah. Okay. And totally. we need to remove that perception. Totally. Yeah. So what Ma- happened to these guys? So they arrived in the UK, taken to the house. I'll tell you Marish's story is probably the easiest. And given five quid a week to live off. And he's like, well, where's my job? And they said, all oh, right, well, we'll take you to the bank and open a bank account, get taken to the bank. He lived at, for example, an address, um, uh, Broadway. So he lived at Broadway. The address used to open his bank account would be provided in a false document that would say he lived at John Michael Street. So all the documents, his bank card, everything else would go to John Michael Street and he'd never see it. He'd then be registered for work he now has a bank account over which he has no control and hit work at legitimate businesses who outsource their high turnover manual labor to employment agencies. They'd either have someone in the employment agency, which happened twice, or they would uh, have someone, one of their insiders work with the men, fill in the form. It's got the false bank account, the correct bank account, wrong address. So his wages go into a bank account that over he over which he's got no control. This just shows, Caroline, doesn't it, how many different parts of our lives are touched by 
modern slavery, you know, to our listeners, to us, we don't, we aren't even aware yeah. of which parts of our daily routine are affected by modern 90% slavery. of your daily routine, from the minute you get up and brush your teeth, who made the toothbrush, you go to your office, who's cleaning the office? Yeah. Is it contracted out? So what happened to the guys so, who, the actual traffickers? So we've prosecuted a large number of them and they've got very significant sentences. We've just, in fact, there's a sentence coming up for the next batch, one of whom was an Englishman running a recruitment firm. And this was a, a was on a documentary, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, Panorama was... covered it on BBC One. Caroline, you've been such an incredible supporter and part trustee of the Anti-Slavery Collective and you have even more experience than we do. What have you seen so far? And more to the point, where do you think our organisation, the Anti-Slavery Collective, can add the most value in the next decade and beyond? Okay, so you've opened the communication channels. You've made people stop and think. And it goes back to your point, Yuge. You know, we people don't realise that every part of their day, in some way or another, can be touched by modern slavery and human exploitation. What you have yeah. done is open communication and open the thought process. Because it's all well and good, me going into court and looking like an idiot in my gray horse hair, hiding the other gray hair and being paid to talk, the only thing I, I can do. I more gray hair than you. At Whatever. Um, it's all well and good, me doing that. But I can only do so many trials in a year. The only way we're ever gonna stop this is through something like the Anti-Slavery Collective. Opening people's eyes, educating them, providing them with a resource place where they know they can come to to find out the truth. Caroline, if you could give a parting message to our listeners about the role that they can play in combating this global epidemic, what would, what would your message be? The first thing I would do is consume considerately. Think about where your stuff comes from. Think about what you're buying and what it's for. And there are a large minority of us who can afford to support the majority of those who cannot afford, okay? We can be ethical consumers. I choose to wear predominantly secondhand clothes because I think it's more sustainable. And I am trying to educate my children about not buying disposable clothing. And if you buy it, buy it well and wear it well. So I would be a considerate consumer and a considered consumer. So think. And that ties in very much with the environment. You know, you can run the two together because often sustainability, environmental sustainability ties in with human sustainability. And we have a responsibility for both. I would also say compassion. Ask if you see someone who's cleaning your office, care. Don't just say, how are you? Don't be English about it as well. Yeah. And shy away from it. How are you? Okay, how are you? Have you got your passport? Are you getting your full wages? Have you got somewhere safe to live? Also, it's even if you don't want to ask these questions. Find a way just, of getting someone just, else to ask. Or it's just yeah. as easy to be nice. You know? Yeah. Do you know? It doesn't pay attention to somebody. Pay attention. Look them in the eye. Mm. You know? And then my third C, when you see it, report it. Look, the police are trying. They're not brilliant. Nobody's brilliant. And I put myself in that category. I'm absolutely not brilliant, but I'm trying. And the police aren't trying. They're not always getting it all right. Nobody is. 
but call it out. Mm. And even if we get one out of 10 right, it's better than none out of 10. Mm. And don't be afraid of calling something out and it being wrong because yeah. better to have ra- raised absolutely raised than not. Absolutely. Just, you know, be a considered consumer, care, call it out and take responsibility for our, foot, our you know, footprint in the world to our fellow man. Oh, what a lovely way to end. <laughs> Thank you so much, Caroline, for your time. That's and all right. As Thank Jill you said, for we could sit us. for hours and, and chat. Yeah, maybe I know. we will. Maybe yeah. we will. <laughs> I mean, I do think our phone will look quite bad. Yeah. <laughs> Thank God for Wi Fi. Thanks for listening to the first episode of Floodlight and a very big thank you to Caroline Hockey for joining us. Next week, we're joined by a truly amazing woman. We sit down for an extended conversation with Wumi, a survivor of modern slavery here in the UK. She tells us about her experiences and how she escaped them, how she's using her story to inspire change and how we can all learn to spot signs of modern slavery in our own communities. She is a true inspiration. You can also be an activist and join us in the fight against modern slavery by visiting our website, theantislaverycollective.org. And if you want to learn more about what we've discussed on today's episode, head to the show notes and follow the links. Our mission is to raise awareness about modern slavery. Please help us by sharing and posting about this podcast. Please make sure you subscribe to Floodlight wherever you're listening and leave us a review. We'd love to hear from you and we'd love to know about your own activism and who you'd like us to speak to next time. So see you next week. Floodlight is a stack production and part of the Acast Creator Network.